Hey, everybody, welcome to another episode of Let's Read the Bible, a podcast where I take a deep dive into biblical topics in a way that's easy to understand. If you would like to follow along, you can download the YouVersion Bible app and subscribe to the Bible in a Year reading plan. We also have PDFs available on our website, Grove.Church. Yes, and as you're reading along or listening along, we would love to field any questions you may have or that come up. Uh, we love to take time as much as we can at the end of every podcast to answer a question or two. Uh, and so there's two easy ways to get those questions to us. If they come to mind, I would love for you to jump on uh, your email and shoot us an email. Uh, the email address that you send it to is info at grove.church. Uh, make sure you put in the subject line a Let's Read the Bible podcast question. Uh, or you can direct message our Grove Church Facebook page. We are the Grove Church in Washington State. Uh, you can DM us there. Send us a message. Uh, we get those questions there too. And we'd love to take time every week to answer them. There you go. All right. Well, this week we are continuing our discussion on the story of the books that Ezra and Nehemiah, mm-hmm. the stories that the books of Ezra and Nehemiah tell, I suppose is the way to say it. So we're part two of three today. Exactly. Last week we talked through the story of Zerubbabel and the very first return of the exiles into Jerusalem. This week, we're going to talk about Ezra, which is the second half of the book of Ezra. So as far as resources we're using today, the ESV Study Bible, Logos Bible Software, Reformation Study Bible, the Essence of the Old Testament, a survey by Ed Hinson and Gary Yates, and the Evangelical Dictionary of Theology, edited by Walter A. E. Elwell. That's so, a mouthful, bro. Yeah, that one's a... I'm proud of you. You got through it pretty quickly. Yeah, you know, I try. I try. Uh, that one is for specifically the question that we had come in this week. So that's, that's what we call a teaser trailer, or just a teaser, I suppose. But Something like that. Anyway, all right. So the story of Ezra, and we're, I'm, it's a little bit confusing because the story of Ezra is only about half the book of Ezra. So yeah, and that is very confusing. Right. So when we're saying the story of Ezra, we're really referring to the second half. So chapter seven through 10 of the book of Ezra, the first six chapters. So I guess it's not half, it's a little bit less than half, but the first six chapters deal with Zerubbabel, Zerubbabel, Zerubbabel. <laughs> I was going to say, say what? Z, our good buddy Z. Z. He returns. Uh, he leads a remnant. They get the temple started. It laxes for a little bit. And then, you know, our friends Haggai and uh, Zachariah, they're like, hey, get back on that thing. And like, you're right. And then they do. And then jump on it. So jump on it. So that's the idea. Uh, and then the story of Ezra picks up 57 years after the return of Zerubbabel. Yeah. So, so chapter six ends, 57 years later, chapter seven begins. Yep. And Zerubbabel is, at this point, he is either very, very Sorry, old. I'm just laughing at Zerubbabel. 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 <laughs> Zeru. I'm just a jerk. I'm just laughing. Sorry. Back to the actual stuff that matters. Anyway, uh, so at this point, Zerubbabel is gone, and we're not going to say his name anymore. (laughs) And by this point, the temple has been completed, and we get the much easier to pronounce Ezra and Nehemiah, who their ministries now begin. Uh, And it's actually, I I wrote, it's a little bit similar to the old prophets, where it's less about, because the the ministry of when you get to like Haggai and Zechariah, it's very unique, because it's essentially saying, hey finish this building project that you're working on. And then Ezra and Nehemiah kind of get back to the old prophet way. And then the the prophets around this time as well, where you see uh, uh, Malachi being one of them, um, they start to deal with the character of the people. Mm. So it kind of gets back to it. Not that, not that Haggai and Zechariah weren't as well, but it had that. There's whole... a task to be completed with those two. And Ezra, it's not the heart condition that they're, he's addressing. Exactly. All right. So first off, we're going to get to chapters seven and eight. I called these... The, the technical, technical stuff, stuff. <laughs> yep. Because, I mean, I love I love parts of the Bible that do this because it, it's really just convenient mm-hmm. to actually give you here's all of the data that you need to know, and it also helps with the reading as far as like if you think this is myth, 
No myth goes into this kind of detail. So there you go. Uh, Chapter 7 of Ezra deals with many of the details of what his ministry would look like. So in the very first section, we get everyone's favorite, a genealogy. So boy, the Israelites love their genealogies. This is where you get to pick children's names from. This is where you just get to get new names. Everyone can name their their kid like Matthew, Mark, (laughs) Luke, John. I mean, those are boring. But you can go into the genealogies and you can get yourself like Perez. That's a great name. Also mm-hmm. a last name. But, you know, bring it back. <laughs> bring back the first name. Uh, so chapters, uh, So we get a genealogy showing that Ezra is a priest in the line of Aaron. Aaron being Moses' brother. So he goes back essentially yeah. saying to the very first high priest, the tribe of Levi. All of that stuff, which is. Which is a big deal. It, it actually is a like, stamp of authority and approval. Right. Uh, to give him the the credit he needs to lead the way he's leading. It's it's similar to the way that we see that Jesus' genealogy goes back to David. Mm-hmm. And he's in a messianic line. Ezra here is going to take on the role of high priest and it's showing that he has the. The um, I'm trying. To, I'm trying to think of the word. The uh, the pedigree, the authority. Yeah. The, um, he and it's an it's part of his bloodline. Yeah. So he has the. It's not just someone coming in to to, to take over a position. He's actually the rightful heir uh, to continue on the line. Right. So there you go. Uh, and then we get the dates of his return, which is always convenient. I so forgot. Very which, helpful. Which prophet was it that gave us? Shoot, Zephaniah. No, it was one of the last ones we did. Well, yeah. You're, listen, oh. you're the walking dictionary and encyclopedia. Okay. I hate that I can't remember. I'm the color man. I, I add color to the conversation. It's similar It's similar to that book where he's giving you the actual in this of month. what happens when yeah, it happens. in this day in the year. All right. So, and then we get a cool copy of a letter given to Ezra by Artaxerxes. And so it actually says, you know, and this is the letter given to Ezra by King Artaxerxes. And then he introduces himself, I, Artaxerxes, King of Kings, which like, whoa, slow your roll there, guy. Pump the brakes. That's uh, it's not going to work out great for you. But Artaxerxes is a pretty good guy, all things considered. So Sure. Well, he lets the Israelites go back. So that's nice. I, I get, yeah, if that's your qualification. And then there's good. the, I mean, yeah. So he, he like... <laughs> Because Artaxerxes is, he's the king in Esther, right? Or am I thinking of a different one? No, you're right. I think that's him. So, yeah. So he does the whole- Yeah, because this this window of time is roughly around the same king. Yeah. So he does the whole like punishing his wife for not dancing in front of his friends provocatively. So- Yeah, not showing off. It's a bit of a wash. But hey, he lets the Israelites come back. So you got that whole thing going on. And he doesn't kill them all. So, I mean- Go Artaxerxes. Go Esther, okay? Esther's I, the reason why he doesn't kill I mean, all. he doesn't allow a genocide to happen, and how many of us can say that? So <laughs> he's just, he's a good guy. That's a low <laughs> bar, a but okay. He's a good guy, that Artaxerxes. Anyway, sorry, that went completely off the rails. Uh, so he gives Ezra a letter, which essentially gives him the funding and the authority uh, to not rebuild the temple, but kind of, you know, make it nice and do some other stuff as well. And so Ezra takes the letter and he actually reacts here. And this marks a shift, which I think is interesting, where from this point, so chapter 7, verse 27, all the way through until chapter 10, the book of Ezra is in the first person. <clears throat> so he's actually talking through, and this happened to me, and I went through, and there's a copy of the letter, all that kind of different stuff. But after the letter is finished, it says, Blessed be the Lord, the God of our fathers, who put such a thing as this into the into the heart of the king to beautify the house of the Lord of hosts that is Jerusalem, that is in Jerusalem, the house of the Lord that's in Jerusalem. And who extended to me his steadfast love before the king and his counselors and before all the king's mighty officers, I took courage for the hand of the Lord, my God was on me and I gathered leading men from Israel to go up with me. So basically saying, 
We're on our way back, boys. Yeah, and it's a celebration. It's a celebration because if you remember um, reading through this, you'll remember that because I, I believe it just we just finished reading it as of the, our recording date of the Book of Ezra. Uh, but you just remember, like he came into this rest saying, "God, give me courage, strengthen me to be able to ask boldly for these things for the temple," um, which is a big deal. So you see the other side of it; he gets to celebrate and rejoice. Absolutely. So that happens. We keep moving forward, and then we get a list of the heads of the families that returned with Ezra. So not quite a genealogy, but you know, close enough. Yeah, it's close enough. If you want some more baby, just skip names, over it. <laughs> they're in there. Hey, don't skip. <laughs> All scripture is God breathed uh, yes. and useful and yes. profitable for teaching. Yes. So, yes. Um, but I still skipped it. <laughs> yeah, but you don't have to read over it like five times or anything. So it just gives you a list of the people who go back. Uh, and then next up, we get the section where Ezra actually gathers together the Levites uh, who are going to serve as the priests of the temple. So, And they have this moment where they kind of go away and then they fast and they pray and they offer sacrifices to Yahweh. So it's kind of a cool moment. That's at the tail end of uh, chapter eight. Yeah. Well, I, if I remember correctly, he had to pursue the, the Levites because there was none originally who went with them. Wasn't, isn't that right? When he gathered, I'm pretty sure, I just read this the other day. I'm pretty sure this mm-hmm. was Ezra. I, I, my, my concern is I'm getting it confused with some of the content in Nehemiah, but having just read this, like he, he asks who wants to go with him. He has a group of people, they gathered a spot, but then he realizes no one from Levi, the, the priests the, or the Levites from that tribe. Um, and then he has to then go and ask and call some of those as well to be part of it. I think there's definitely, yeah, he's definitely going and asking people. I just don't remember if it's because there was none or if there need, if he needed more, yeah. how that kind of I, works I think out. it's because there was none, if I remember. Again, we just finished reading this in the reading plan uh, as of our recording date. So uh, maybe I'm wrong. And if I'm wrong, that's okay, because I'm not perfect. So yeah. anyways. All right. Well, next up, we have a section called Ezra's Reforms, and this is chapter 9 and 10. So it takes us through the end of the book. And this is where we get, so Ezra... The lead up to this was essentially Ezra's going to bring back people. They're going to beautify the temple a little bit, and there's going to be more and more people returning to Jerusalem, which is a big deal. Yeah. Because uh, remember, it was an absolutely crushing, life-altering thing for Jerusalem to fall. It's not – it's 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 so weird today because I think we have a couple of things that are wrong. Number one, it's so far away from us historically, and we know that Jerusalem fell, so it doesn't really matter. And then two, we actually have, like Jerusalem exists today. Like there's a place in the world where primarily Jews live in the city of Jerusalem. Like it's a cool, so that's a cool deal as well. Um, But for the ancient Israelites, it was a massive shock to have Jerusalem fall, to Mm -hmm. have the temple be destroyed. Um, And you can see it just in all the literature. We've talked about this a million times, but even the idea of when you get to the post-exilic period, so when they've started to come back, you really don't hear about them worshiping other gods anymore because it's kind of like, okay, we're done with that. There is a national identity. Not that they don't need to be called into repentance from sin, but um, there doesn't seem to be rampant idolatry. Although there is, we'll talk a little bit about what happens in Ezra because there does seem to be some of... uh, some compromise there, but yeah. I st- it still doesn't seem like it's on the level of what we saw. What it was, the, yeah, yeah, that's true. The Chronicles. So, the major issue facing Ezra and the Israelites was now the intermarriage with the surrounding peoples who did not worship Yahweh. Uh, Ezra is told about this, and he does not. He's not happy about it. He's not feeling good. So that's what I mean. Where it doesn't seem like the people of Israel are engaging in active idolatry and worshiping other gods, but they are intermarrying with people who don't necessarily worship Yahweh. So that's a big deal, obviously kind of the whole deal with Israel is that they're supposed to be set apart. Yeah. They're supposed to be God's chosen people and they're not being right now. Yeah, The actions they're taking to marrying someone else is they're not, they're not staying 
pure, if you will. That's kind of a crass way to say it, but it's right. It's, it's also, also a clearer way to have a picture of what it means. So in Ezra 9, we get this picture of what happens when he's told about this. It says, and again, this is all in first person. As soon as I heard this, I tore my garment and my cloak and pulled hair from my head and beard and sat appalled. Then all who trembled at the words of the God of Israel because of the faith, faithlessness of the returned exiles gathered around me while I sat appalled until the evening sacrifice. And at the evening sacrifice, I rose from my fasting with my garment and my cloak torn, and I fell upon my knees and spread out my hands to the Lord my God, saying, O oh my God, I am ashamed and blush to lift my face to you. My God, for our iniquities have risen higher than our heads, and our guilt has mounted up to the heavens. From the days of our fathers to this day, we have been in great guilt. And for our iniquities, our kings and our priests have been given into the hand of the kings of the lands, to the sword, to captivity, to plundering, and to utter shame, as it is today. But now, for a brief moment, favor has been shown by the Lord our God to leave us a remnant and to give us a secure hold within this holy place, that our God may brighten our eyes and grant us a little reviving of our, in our slavery. For we are slaves, yet our God has not forsaken us in our slavery, but ha has extended to us his steadfast love before the kings of Persia to grant us some reviving, to set up the house of our God, to repair its ruins, and to give us protection in Judea and Jerusalem. All right, so he's not, he's not feeling it, but I also... I find it really interesting that he compares the state of the Israelites now to the state that they were in in Egypt, because he's talking about how they are enslaved. Mm -hmm. And it's, it's it's kind of a weird thing to think about. Where in the Egyptian story, the Israelites willingly go to Israel, to Egypt, because remember it's Jacob bringing his sons. Joseph is kind of in charge here, and they go willingly into Egypt, and then things get progressively worse for them to the point where God has to deliver them. Whereas in this story, they go unwillingly into Babylon and things get progressively better, um, mostly because Babylon's overthrown, but also because yeah. <laughs> per the Persian kings, um, you know, like we said before, they're pretty good guys for the most part. So, <laughs> but... And how they treat God's people and how God uses them to provide um, and fulfill God's promises to his people. That's what that's what we mean by good. I don't I don't I don't know them well enough to know that I would call them necessarily good just based upon his history. But yeah. I'm being so. I'm being really tongue in cheek when I say that. Yeah. But they're not actively towards God's people. Totally. Yeah, they're totally not actively weird. opposing the Jews, um, except for that that little hiccup where they almost allowed a genocide. But again, yeah, but that was know. Haman. That wasn't Artaxerxes. Yeah, you know, Artaxerxes. You know, it was just a just a little mistake. But they they worked through it. They worked it out, and now uh, every year. Uh, Purim is celebrated, so that's nice. Yay. All right. But <laughs> sorry, anyway. A little, uh, little confetti emoji. We're just going off the rails today. You are. I blame you. <sighs> you should. All right. So <laughs> it's not happy. But yeah, essentially his idea is they're still in a certain kind of bondage, right? It's not the yeah. Egyptian slavery where they can't do anything, like they couldn't even offer sacrifices, but they are still being ruled over by a foreign power, which is something that would this is essentially the story of Israel from here until you get a little blip with the Maccabees and I love me some Maccabees good times uh but then they're basically ruled over from that point all the way until the 1940s <laughs> like it's just it it it's a very very long time of Israel being under the rule of a foreign power yeah. and so Ezra's making reference to that 
So the prayer goes past this. I didn't get to. I didn't want to read the whole thing because it's it's a whole chapter of the prayer, but yeah. it's really good. So yeah. read read through it. It's just you know we don't have time on the podcast to do it. Uh, but something interesting happens at the end. So in chapter ten, so this is the beginning of the last chapter of Ezra. It says, and then also this is the shift back to third person. So no longer are we in the first person. While Ezra prayed and made confession, weeping and casting himself down before the house of God, a very great assembly of men, women, and children gathered to him out of Israel, for the people wept bitterly. And Shechaniah, the son of Jehiel, Jehiel, the son of Elam, addressed Ezra, We have broken faith with our God and have married foreign women from the peoples of the land, but even now there is hope for Israel in spite of this. Therefore, let us make covenant with our God to put away all these wives and their children according to the counsel of my Lord and those who tremble at the commandment of God, and let it be done according to the law. Arise, for this is your task, and we are with you. Be strong and do it. Then Ezra arose and made the leading priests and Levites and all of Israel take an oath that they would do as had been said. So they took the oath. All right. And this gets us to the very end of the book, which is kind of a weird, it's a weird ending. And all of the stories kind of end in these weird sort of anticlimaxes, I guess you could say. Uh, But with the story of Ezra in particular, he addresses the nation and he leads them into repentance. However, it's possible he goes too far. And I want to be careful with this because commentators are actually pretty split as to whether or not this was the right thing or the wrong thing to do. Um, But... Essentially, it's commanded for the separation of all of these marriages that have taken place. And so it said, you know, it, the, the exact words is put away your wives, which is kind of a, like you said, crass something earlier. Like that's a, also a very crass way of putting it. But the idea is for those people who have uh, intermarried, it should be over now. They need to send those people away and they need to essentially just focus on what. Uh, God would have them. So the the way, the reason that there's kind of split issue on this is it's never explicitly said that this is God's command, right? It's Ezra repenting, and then you have this elder of Jerusalem who comes forward and says, you know, let us do this according to what my Lord has said. But when he says my Lord, it's very clearly he's referring to Ezra. He's not referring to God Himself. He's not saying like, remember we have the. The full caps when it's the name Yahweh being used, mm-hmm. that's definitely not what he's using. He's also not using, you know, caps Lord. He's using Lord in sense of this is what I think we should do. As this is what Ezra thinks we should do. So therefore, this is what we should do. Um, and the reason you could say that this might not be actually what God had commanded or what God wants is in Malachi, you actually get a whole passage about how God hates divorce and he doesn't want divorce to happen. Now, is that referring to all these marriages or is that referring specifically to the Jewish marriages at the time? Like I said, it's a very open-handed issue, um, but it seems possible at the very least that Ezra kind of goes a, a step too far in this in this. Uh, leading of Israel to repentance. Of course, it's also possible that this is exactly what it should have been yeah. and that they'd be able to put it away as well. So again, open-handed, we can kind of read it how we want to read it there for for what it's worth. Yeah, yeah it's, it's a hard passage. I mean, this is a hard passage to really kind of understand clearly what what is being said here because on one hand, you read it, as you read it, it's God's telling people to get rid of their wives that they've married. Um, uh, and and we can be really upset about that and, and annoyed or confused or God, why would God allow it? And, and we got to be very careful too reading in what happened in ancient history um, and reading it point, uh, what is it not 
carte, not carte blanche, but reading it as if it applies directly to our culture today. Um, so we just got to be careful with that. I mean, what what Ezra is really focusing on is is the compromise of integrity that exists and has happened based upon God's people intermarrying and their uh, what happens in any marriage is you you settle to the weakest link almost you you settle down um, and and this is a there's a big reason why as, like someone who does you know officiates weddings um, for members of our church and walks through premarital there's there's a lot of the conversation of uh, you know, of this idea of unequally yoked, marrying someone who is not in alignment and in of the same mind and heart and faith as you, that's a biblical reality. So um, we just have to be careful. And I'll just say this uh, just to be, I mean, we can't look at this back. Well, this didn't thing justifies and gives me reason to divorce so-and-so. It doesn't um, because right. there's very clear conversations biblically that talk about it. Um, and and so we just have to be very, very careful about that interpretation and reading it as if it applies directly to today. No, Ezra's giving us a picture of understanding the hearts of God's people were not in alignment with him. Part of the reason is because they intermarried and intermarrying a different someone from a different culture means you yield or it means at times God's people will be um, half-hearted because mm-hmm. they're, I mean, Paul says it all the time, like, don't, it's better not to be married, but if you can't control yourself, get married um, because you're, you're, passion and love and and purpose is divided to now you have to care for your spouse and serve your spouse too. So anyways, makes sense. a much bigger conversation, but um, it's just one of those things we got to be very careful about, but at the same time, not giving us a green light to do whatever we want because that's not biblical either. It's a hard passage. We talk about hard passages on this podcast, but it's one of those ones where uh, it comes up all the time where there's not necessarily a definitive answer one way or the other, which is always fun. And, And then just to say this, if if God did orchestrate divorce among these these couples, then we have to trust in His sovereignty as Creator. We have to trust in His uh, ways that are higher than ours, and His His thoughts and understanding that's better than ours. We see in part, He sees in full, and so we just have to trust in the goodness of God. We have to trust in the the the, the proficiency and the sovereignty of who God is, um, and we have to yield our own interpretations, which should be the case anytime we read the Scripture. Pastor Nick said this a little bit ago, one of our, our, our pastor here at the church, um, but it's scripture should read me. I'm not trying to read scripture. It should read me. So we have to hold those things very loose and say, God, I trust you. You're sovereign. Um, even though this doesn't make sense, I'm going to trust you. Yep. And this is, this is, we already said this, this is not the hardest passage we've ever read either, but we do. That's It's a tough passage to understand entirely. At the end of the day, we have to trust God. Yep. There you go. All right. Well, we're going to jump into our Q&A session today or just answer a question that came in. Uh, But before we do, we're going to go ahead and pause and ask you to, hey, leave us a review if you can. Give us a little little five stars on whatever app you're listening to. Uh, If you're not listening on any app, you're just listening to the website, just give us a, do us a favor, download Apple Podcasts and give us a review on there. But it just helps get the podcast out there to more people and grow this community of people reading the Bible together. Yeah, and we enjoy the comments. We enjoy the reviews. We just enjoy knowing that uh, we're just continuing to uh, be a part of the community and enjoying being, being part of it too. So, yep. All right. So a question comes in, says, hello, O noble podcasters of let's read the Bible. Hello. Good, sir. Thank you for using our proper or titles. Uh, question, <laughs> quick, proper titles. quick question. Uh, first John two eighteen talks about the antichrist, but also that many have already come. And while we have a fictionalized version of the antichrist, thanks to many a book and movie biblically, who or what is the slash an antichrist? All right. So great question. Because, yeah, if you grew up in a certain era like I did, uh, when I was a kid, 
Rapture movies were super oh, popular. Geez, yeah, they were. So there was Left Behind, which was, I think that's the most popular How one. How old are you again, Evan? I'm 28. Okay, I'm so, 37. So there was a good, I would say at least a decade, if not longer, where Rapture movies were all the rage. Yeah, we're talking- I'd say probably two decades. Yeah, probably late 80s to early 2000s is when these are really popular. So there was Left Behind- God Kurt, bless Christianity. Kurt Cameron, his magnum opus, if you will. Um, but then there's also, there's one I remember called the Omega Code, yep, which the, o- the opening scene was like this rabbi who's like, I, I don't remember what he figured. He like figured out that like, wait a second, the rapture's coming. And all of a sudden there's like a bunch of lasers that appear on him and get shot. And I'm like six and I'm watching this. I'm like, this is pretty disturbing. There's another one I remember where like, I don't even remember what the movie was, but it was a VHS tape I had. And you know how back in the day, we're going to go off on a little bit of a tangent. Please be kind, rewind. Back in the day. When you would get your VHS tapes, there was previews at the beginning. And unlike DVDs where you can just hit menu and go straight or now it's You had to fast forward through them. Yeah, fast forward. Or watch them. Here's the thing. I just watched them because I was a kid and I was dumb. So I just put them in. I was like, all right, yeah, cool. And there was a movie that was basically just like Christians getting sent to the guillotine after uh, after the- um, I remember that movie. Do you? Yeah. I think I actually watched it in Sunday school. All of these things. And this is what I'm saying. So I was born in 83, but when I was in, I mean, it was in- Late 80s, early 90s, I remember sitting in Sunday school class when I was in elementary school. One of the things we watched was about the end times and the rapture. Boom. So I still vividly remember different scenes from that movie. And I'm like, I don't want to die. <laughs> it made me think in 2000 that th- that's when God was coming back. It just makes sense. Oh, 2000 yeah. years ago, Y2K, I didn't even, I was 15 years old, didn't even have my license yet. I was like, God, I'm not even going to be able to drive. I was, um, here eight, we are. I was freshly eight years old for Y2K. And I love you say freshly. His birthday is at the end of December. December 21st. So I was newly eight. Uh, but I definitely have this memory of at the church, um, there was like a prayer meeting because everyone was kind of like worried about this. But all the kids, like, you know, we knew this ain't the end of the world. And so we were like playing in like this one room and then there was like a whole prayer meeting on the other ends of it. So, so funny. all of that to say, that was a bit of a tangent. Uh, when you say, yeah, there's many, there's books and movies. Yeah, there is this image of what the Antichrist is. Yeah. If you watch the Left Behind movies, then it's like Nikolai, Carpathia, yeah. all this I just like the stuff. way you said it though too. He's like, uh, with the figure, figure, what is it? Uh, oh, I'm reading your answer. Sorry. Fictionalized version. Yes, fictionalized versions. <laughs> like that. Yep, yep, yep. That's true. Yep. Okay. So- all those movies, if you like them, cool. Um, they're not like the worst. Yeah, there's nothing wrong with them. Yeah. It's just be careful with the fear-mongering reality that comes with them. Well, it's fear-mongering, but it's also the, the big thing is, re- so Revelation is intentionally very hard to interpret. Mm-hmm. It is the most, you can say Revelation and then the end of Daniel are like the two most difficult Bible passages to interpret. Yeah. And it's ma- it's made so intentionally. God is giving us pictures of what is going to come to pass, but he's mm-hmm. not giving us like this, hey, hey, bud, if you study long enough, you're going to be able to get this all figured yeah. out. Like, no, he's just giving us pictures of, and symbolic pictures yeah. of what is eventually going to happen. So- Well, it's fitting that we're talking about this question right now, because today is the first day we're reading Revelation in this plan. Oh, uh, so uh, so it, it, the day of our recording, again, when I say today, it's the day that we're recording. Um, Thursday, this, September This podcast 30th. does not record, get recorded on Sundays, just so you guys know. Um, You're not listening but live. All of that, all of that to say, like it's fitting because Revelation we just started reading today, um, and there's a lot to it. Like, there's part of me at times that wishes we could spend a, an, an entire time on the Book of Revelation, only because there's so much to unpack in the book, and we don't have enough time in thirty to forty minutes to do so. Right. All of that to say, it's just fitting. So, 
getting about the Antichrist, uh, yeah, there's obviously different versions. We have these pictures in our heads. Um, those books and movies, like they're fun, they're good. They can kind of point our affections to they God. They give us an idea, but remember it's drama, drama, dramatized. Right. Do not take those as, these aren't canon. I guess I would almost put it in a similar way. Like I really- The movies, I, not, the, not the, the book. Yeah. I would almost put it in the same way as um, I've really been enjoying The Chosen TV show. I think it's really good. Um, but that one, like it takes what's in the Bible- and it adds to it and it kind of creates like this fictionalized story, which yeah. I think is really good. And it points my affections to Jesus. But you always have to be careful, like the things that they're kind of filling in, that's not the Bible, just yes. like in those movies. So uh, the New Testament, though, it offers us plenty of warnings about an Antichrist. Uh, and I think we have to keep in mind that there's some different meanings in these passages. Uh, some of the passages are referring to the expectation of a single Antichrist figure, and others are referring to Antichrist behavior, or in other words, behavior opposed to Christ or the gospel. So the Antichrist is actually a few things. So here we get here's the references that we have to it in the New Testament. First, in John's letters, uh, we see that there is a single Antichrist that is expected, but also that some who have left the church are Antichrists. So this is the verse that our dear listener brought up. It's in 1 John 2, 17 through 19. It says, and the world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. Children, it is the last hour. And as you have heard that the anti that antichrist is coming. So now many antichrists have come. Therefore, we know that it is the last hour. They went forth or they went out from us, but they were also not of us. For if they had not been of us, they would have continued with us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might become plain that they are all not of us. So here John is talking about, again, there is that idea of a single figure because Antichrist is coming, but also many Antichrists have already come. So he's kind of delineating between the two. Uh, in Paul's letter, uh, the second letter to the Thessalonians, he warns about a single Antichrist figure. And then finally in Revelation, which are probably the most famous passages, uh, there's, a, there's a prophecy of a uh, spiritual figure that who is taken in power before Christ's return, who is the Antichrist and is eventually defeated. And he gets his power or she, I mean, the Antichrist gets their power from uh, Satan. <coughs> so that's kind of what we have. And then there's also some interesting things in church history where the early church fathers pretty universally viewed Nero as the Antichrist, um, Nero being the emperor who executed Paul mm -hmm. um, and also famously sang while Rome burned. So a bit of a wackadoodle, that, yeah. that Nero. Uh, not a good guy like the kings of Persia. So just I'm just on that today. Uh, <laughs> but, uh, but also you kind of just see it all throughout history. There's people who rise up and people are like um, – this is the Antichrist. So you have it with the reformers, the popes, there's the Antichrist. Um, every four to eight years in America, an, anti an Antichrist is elected president. So <laughs> depending on what side of the aisle that you're on. But it's, uh, it's just one of those things where there's a few different interpretations, but really what it boils down to is there's a couple different ways. The Antichrists is people who are opposed to the gospel, people who actively mm -hmm. work against the work yes. of Christ. And it's something that is not uncommon and something that we need to be on the lookout for um, as Christian leaders. And I think, I think honestly, in that, in that term of definition, I think another word that we could use is false teachers, right? Yeah. So it's people who twist the words of scripture to actually go against what is um, what the gospel teaches. Yes. So I think that's kind of <clears throat> what we can call little a antichrist 
There is also some kind of a figure. We don't know who it is. I don't think it was Nero, the Pope's or any of the last few presidents, um, but I think there's there's some type of fu- figure in the future where when Christ is ready to come back, there will be something that's taken power. Yeah. Um, but we don't, and, and this thing I always talk about, we don't really know what it is, and, it's the, and that's intentional. God's mm-hmm. kind of giving us pictures of what's gonna happen, but I think we kind of get lost in the weeds of trying to figure out exactly how is the, Antichrist going to come? Like, you know, is it going to, is microchips, mark of the beast, like all this different stuff. We just kind of get, God is very gracious and he gives us pictures of what the end will look like. And I think sometimes we, we squander that gift by trying to just like make every little thing into, into that. Yeah. It goes back to me for, I mean, the, the one simple verse that I always wrestle with when I'm trying to figure out answers to unknown things and uncertain things. It doesn't mean I shouldn't pursue knowledge and gaining wisdom and understanding things, but there will be some things that will not make sense and we will not understand, we will not know them. And, and it's for the glory of God to, to conceal a matter. It's for the glory of Kings to reveal a matter. And so I think the tension is sometimes it's, it's understanding there's a title and then there's an, uh, a descriptive word. A title is the, the reference to the antichrist, which in essence it's someone who will have uh, have the appearance of a Christ-like figure uh, by the way, by the means of he will die and then will find himself being resurrected in some degree, all all through the you know the power of Satan, whatever. That's part of it. Like there is this the way that he uh, will be on this earth, it will have similarities and appearance to Christ's life, death, resurrection. In essence, it's a knockoff. He will be a knockoff of what Christ and who Christ really is. That's the Antichrist. That's the figure that's prophesied about in Revelation. That's someone we have yet to see, um, to my knowledge right now, yet to see play out in the world we live in right now. It's not to say it's not happening or it's not potential. We just don't see it. And scripture is very clear where we will know the Antichrist when he is revealed, Um, which anyways... So that's the Antichrist. Antichrist is also like anti-Jesus. They are against the gospel, which is what yeah. Evan, you already said. So that's the way that I've always viewed it. Now, the hard part is what's well, being talked about when, and that's the beauty of some of the things. When it comes to John's letters, we see this Antichrist figure expected. You see Paul's letter, he talks about, uh, again, different people. But anybody who sets themselves up in opposition, Nero's a great example, the popes in some examples, some of the presidential figures, some of the world leaders that set themselves up against the gospel, there would be ones who are opposition and against Christianity. But that Antichrist figure is one who's going to try and, in essence, be and model like Christ, which is Satan's number one attempt from day one, is trying to be like God. Right. Uh, and so that's where you see that figure playing. So that's going to be the two differences. You have to read the context and understand a little bit more around the passages to, again, just to be able to differentiate between the two. But yep. Satan tries to be like God, but in the end can only mimic or mock that power, um, much like Morgoth in Tolkien's Lord of the Rings universe. Well, that wraps it up for another episode of Let's Read the Bible. I was hoping I was going to get a laugh out of you on that one, but... I missed it. Sorry. Oh, uh, it's fine. It's here's, fine. here's the problem. Uh, my phone blows up all the time when I'm in this podcast. It's true. And when it's from certain people, I have to look at it. My wife was one of those people, but this was not the message from my wife. So, uh, so I totally missed it. Well, that wraps... If it was a Lord of the Rings reference, 
it was. It's okay. Uh, but that wraps it up for this episode of Let's Read the Bible. Uh, as a reminder, we are a resource of the Grove Church, but we're not the only resource of the Grove Church. You can go online uh, and check out our Life and Limb blog, our full archive of past podcasts, and our full archive of past messages as well. Uh, and if this podcast has been a blessing to you and you'd like to financially contribute to the ministry that the Grove Church does, you can also do that on our website. There's a gift button in the upper right-hand corner. Uh, but with that being said, we will see you all next week. Have a great day.